Hello, I'm Phil Williams. And I'm Natalie Jameson, and welcome to another episode of Best Sellers. Episode four, in fact. They said we'd never get past three. (laughs) (laughs) And in episode four, the author that we feature is actually one of the instructing staff from Channel 4's SAS Who Dares Wins. The directing staff don't feel Ollie is taking this podcast seriously enough, so they've called him in for further questioning. Number one, I've read your book. I know it's your second book. Do you think that makes you some kind of Shakespeare or something? No, I don't. Which bit did you like the most, though? There are huge amounts of this book, number one. They're very insightful about you and they speak volumes about your character. But they've left me wondering, how much do you actually want to be part of this podcast? Yeah, well, I, you know, it's my deepest and, and darkest thoughts in that book and I hope that it does some of the world a good, but I don't think it's going to work on you. So, Ollie, you have survived many things in your life. Yet you admit in this book that you've been almost, or no, actually you have been run over by a car four times, four times. I know, and one of them was a was a one eye mechanic. <laughs> That's a true story. <laughs> the question is number one: Do you want to give me your armband? If you want to give me your armband, just put it on the table now. Do you number one? I don't need armbands. <laughs> I can swim. I hate the way they use the one man word. <laughs> It's not an armband, it's a frigging number. They say that, it gives you an armband. I'm like, it's not an armband. Armbands are for people that can't swim. Are you taking the piss? God. It is, of course, Ollie Ollerton. And this week, it's non-fiction that we are featuring on bestsellers because Ollie's written a book called Battle Ready. And we do want to stress that this interview was recorded at the height of lockdown at the beginning of May. Ollie, look, first of all, um, I'm starting the book and it's called Battle Ready. It says on the cover, eliminate doubt, embrace courage, transform your life. I think I know what I'm going to get. But all of a sudden, I'm reading about you being ripped apart by a chimp at the age of 10. And those are your words. Uh, and it just it just stopped me dead in my tracks. But it also, as you progress through the book, it's clearly still a really important thing in your life and something that through the book you teach us how you try and deal with. Are you able to just recount for people? I mean, I, I don't know if you can or whether yeah. you get bored of doing it, but what happened? No, 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 no I don't get bored because it's such an important lesson um, in that, you know, a crazy, it makes me laugh that I laughed. Every time someone says the chimp attack, I laugh. I wasn't laughing when it happened, believe me. Is that a nervous reaction? (laughs) It's just such a bizarre story, isn't it? I mean, you know, I mean, if I, listen, if I was brought up in a jungle in South America or wherever, in a jungle, and I got attacked by a monkey, it'd be like, yeah, whatever. It was in Burton-on-Trent, Staffordshire. I got attacked by a monkey. I mean, you know, it's, it's just like, what I mean, I've told that story in the past. Foxy's told that story for me because he he actually he's told it so many times. He reckons he tells it better than me now. <laughs> um, uh, but you know, people actually still think at the end of it that it's a joke. You know, and it's because it just sounds so bizarre. I mean, you, I can just imagine my mum when she went. You know, because there was one lad with his James that is a recurring sort of story in the book later on. 
Um, but James ran home to my mum after I'd been attacked, you know, at Mac 10 and burst through the door and was like, uh, Mrs. Oliver, Mrs. Oliver, you know, Matt's been attacked by a chimpanzee. And she, she's like, you can just imagine what she must have thought. You know, she just sent a, a, a two lads off to go swimming. And then an hour later, someone burst through the door saying, I've been attacked by a chimpanzee. I mean, yeah, it's crazy. bizarre. I did, uh, when I started reading this book, I've, I've got two kids. My daughter, my eldest, my daughter is 11. And I started by telling her that bit because that's what I just read. I was like, you've got to hear like this story. And she was wide eyed and, and did not see anything funny in it at all. So I'm, obviously it's in the way that you tell it, but I was kind of, you know, prefacing it with like, this is in the days before health and safety when somebody could just wander into a circus tent and they found a monkey there and the chimp that was about 50 kilograms, you reckon? Uh, yeah, I didn't weigh you. it, but it was bloody heavy. <laughs> 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 yeah, but I, again, I can only imagine then being 11 and saying to, you know, what happened to you? And you're like, yeah, I got attacked by a monkey and people taking the mickey. Yeah, yeah, no, well, it's, it's just, it just seems like a comical story. And, um, but the thing is, the re and, and going back to the question, really, is the fact, you know, and that's why I had locked, and this is what we do as humans, we, we're wired to lock away the intimate trauma of any, any significant event. And that is really where the problem stems, stems from. You know, we, we lock it away, move aside. I mean, I, I think looking back, I re- there was, it was a very quick step from being attacked by a monkey to just moving on with everyday life you know it was like that happened move on and I I didn't know that that deep set trauma at 10 years old would was um you know was a was running through my veins all the way till I've only just recently addressed it you know and that was that was last year when I went off to South America um and I um went to an ayahuasca um retreat well retreat if you call it a retreat, I won't call it a retreat. Actually, there was no retreating. It was full frontal. But, um, you know, it wasn't until I actually went back and addressed what had gone on that I actually have managed to unravel that trauma. And it's just made me realise how significant that story is because people, and when it comes to PTSD, whatever your trauma is, you can't just lock it away. You can't just, you can't think that that happened and that's that. You, you you have to really really delve into that and and the more people sort of try and lock away lock lock it away and forget about it regardless it's going to come back and haunt you and you have so you have to turn around and face it and stop running away from it so we and should explain really so, that you've yeah. gone you've gone off with as mates you've seen yeah. the circuses in town yeah you've been told you can go and look at some of the animals because they're all trained up but there's one baby chimp that you discover through a hole in a circus tent who's not yeah. chained up and that baby chimp's not the issue. He's offering you a bit of his banana. He wants to be your mate. Yeah. It's the mum, isn't it? Yeah, sorry, I should have explained the story for those that don't know. It was the mum, yeah. And that, you know, that, that for me, you know, I grew up with Johnny Wiseman, black and white films, with Cheetah, you know, my hero, absolute hero. So as soon as I got through this opening in the tent and saw this chimpanzee, I was like, you know, for, for late, it was my equivalent of ladies seeing George Clooney naked. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was, it was like, it was like, that to me, well, it wasn't the, the, it wasn't the sexual aspects, but you know, it, it, to me, it was like that was my piece of Hollywood. You know what I mean? It was a, it was a chimp. I was brought up with cats and dogs, but I was seeing what I saw only saw through the TV. Sat there, and it it was just so compelling. Went up to it, started engaging with it, started passing me food. I was like, wow, I am I am a, a miniature David Attenborough. 
you know, and this this starts, this is going on, and then next thing I, you know, that serenity was cut like a fighter jet going through the through the sky, um, and I can still hear that roar today, and you know that roar um, caught my attention, and in the in the distant, you know, near distance in the shadows was something moving and and making a horrible noise, and that movement came clearly what was around about a fifty kilogram chimp, Mac ten at me because that was its baby. You know, and, and just at the point, I thought, gee, I've got to get out of the way here. I need to move. The blue sky turned to black as this thing just launched through the air. And I can see it now. It was like slow motion. It was like up in the air and it, it just landed straight on top of me. Pinned me to the floor and then was just going nuts, ripping me to bits, just trying to, trying to, trying to protect its own. And, um, you know, that is why that moment when I looked up and I thought, I'm going to die. There was blood. I can remember seeing blood in its teeth and I was just... I knew at that point I was going to die. I knew it. And I could see, it was almost like you could see the life, you know, oozing out of me going. And um, it, was, it was in that moment I, dis- I had to do something. I had to fight back. But, you know, you imagine in that situation, I had to take a step into further discomfort for any chance of survival that day. And that, for me, that is what I did. I managed to dislodge the chimp, kick it off me, and then I managed to get a few feet and then it came for a final attack and it was just yanked by a chain. It couldn't get to me any, anymore. And that for me was my first breakpoint. And that's why my first book was called Breakpoint. But that is the whole ethos and everything behind Breakpoint is the moment we take a step into the short term discomfort for long term gain. And that's what I did that day. I wanted to survive. And so in writing this book, which is nonfiction and it's a guide, if you like, to help other people to try and find out what's missing in their lives, perhaps, or how they can be better people. How long has this been kind of brewing in your head that you always knew you wanted to kind of get this out there? Well, not to be honest, I've been one of these people that have been in constant conflict for years with myself, you know, forget the wars on the external, the the biggest war has been um, with myself. And it wasn't really until, you know, I couldn't understand how I got to, I hit rock bottom. I mean, my lowest ebb. And I'm sat, you know, and it details in a book, I was working in the laundry, for God's sake, in, you know, not the, no disrespect, but, um, you know, I have to say I wasn't living my full potential at that point. But, you know, it was, it was the whole, I look back at that point and went, hold on a second, you're flipping... You were a special for the highest, high, most highly regarded military unit in the world. And now you are, you can't even string a sentence together. What has happened? So it was that struggle that it was, it was, it was the, the conflict that was going on, knowing that I, I, I had achieved great things, but then falling from such a great height and, and being where I was at rock bottom. But it was that one, the one thing, that, like the special forces, you know, I don't, I, I'm not in the rear view mirror. My life is that way. Everything is that way. I do like really appreciate what I've done, the military and everything. But really, the special forces were not the be, end, be all and end all of my, you know, uh, my life. It was, it was, to be quite honest, it really prepared me for the war that was ahead. And that was with myself. So, you know, it was that point uh, that I recognised, you know, I woke up and thought, I need to ch- I know I can change because I have achieved great things. And it was that it was that hinge pin of knowing that I'd completed special forces selection uh, that that gave me the confidence to know that I could get back to to some level of greatness, if you want to call it greatness. I just call it happiness, fulfillment, and it, that's what set me on, on the um, you know on the search for 
what happens, what goes on in here, why is it, you know, and, and the connection with, you know, we, have, we think everything's external, but it's not, so much is internal, it's all internal, you know, our inter- what's going on internally affects our outside world, you know, it's not the other way around, so, and as soon as we understand that, that happiness is not out there, you know, it starts within, and we, you know, I, start, I, I, I did a 180 and started looking within, and as soon as I started investing in me, in my health, my mindset, everything, the world started opening, it was almost like being born again, it was, it was amazing, you know, I started cutting away the, the, the Valium, I cut away the, um, the alcohol, and once I started giving myself something back, the world started giving something back to me, and it was amazing, and I want to share that with people because everyone is, there's so many people in conflict, you know, and, and the, you know, I want to be, and this could be their job, their weight, their relationships, everything. We're, we've got this internal conflict going on because we're wired to do the same thing as we did yesterday and the day before because it's kept us alive till today. When it comes to evolution of the species, it doesn't give a shit if you're happy, sad or whatever. It just wants to keep repeating what you've done yesterday. Okay. But that just leads to a world of repeat habit loops and usually negative ones um so really you know this all comes back to break points about stepping into that short-term discomfort to change okay and that starts building new neural pathways up here um and because you imagine your negative habit loops have got these strong neural pathways that you've built over time and the, the moment you change you build a new neural pathway and it's only weak at that time but the more you do that you know more you step into that discomfort on a regular basis that starts to strengthen and strengthen and before you know it the positive action becomes the new super high way of thinking but how do you how do you harness the energy ollie to to make sure that you've got that new positive action happening quite early on in the book you write that you remember a moment where you said, enough of this shit, you need to get your life in order, it's now or never. And I've had a few of those moments myself, but what I'll find is that maybe after, say, a week or after two weeks, I'll slide back a bit. And I think you are very brave and you admit that with alcohol as well in the book. So how do you stick to it? Mate, I'm still going through that, you know, and everyone does that because uh, and what basically, it's, it's your... It's, it's my understanding of how we work, how this works. That's how I've got through that. Because basically, I understand if I start um, listening to my emotion, if I start listening to my feelings when I want to change and step into that discomfort, it's always going to say, don't do that. You imagine, let's use, let's use the thought of, I want to, you know, I don't run, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, to do the London Marathon next year. There's no way, and a lot of the questions we get are, how do I suffer with lack of motivation? You're always going to suffer with lack of motivation. You've got to keep stepping into that discomfort because basically your mind, the way we're wired, we want to avoid, um, we want to avoid any kind of stress, any kind of discomfort. So that's why we keep going back. There's a honeymoon period and that is so dangerous, you know, because unless you then try and disengage with the emotion or from the emotion, and you engage in the process. It's about following the process. It's not about, I want to do the process, but I know that running through, I know that if I go out today and do a kilometre, I know, you know, and I do that every other day, I know next week I'll probably be able to do 1.5 kilometres. And that's about following process. And before you know it, you know, it all comes back to the whole breakpoint theory, everything. Once you start continuing that practice, and you start switching off from the emotion that's saying, don't do it, don't do it, you start to get on the path of where that starts to build a positive uh, action. And before you know it, you start enjoying it. But 
everyone comes, it's the same with New Year's resolutions. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Two weeks in, nah, not doing it. Not, and that's just, that's everyone. That's, that's everyone has got that. You've got it. We've got everyone. There's no one that's void of that. It's so funny though, listening to you, know, you so, chat though, because yeah. uh, I start to wonder if I'm wired incorrectly. Obviously, I don't think I am because I'm fine with myself, but I'm, I'm continuously restless and very rarely have those moments where I kind of coast or think, think everything's okay. I operate in quite a high level of stress the whole time. I've been a journalist for a really long time. Um, I've been in some difficult situations, but I really enjoy that. And it does kind of spur me on almost in the other way where I, I think I can do anything. Yeah, no, absolutely. But the thing is the way you are, and that's, that's, a, that's a lot of the problem with people. They think, and I used to think this way, that, oh, this is me. I'm contaminated. My, my thoughts, my, 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 I'm contaminated. There's something wrong with me. But once you actually under, start, to un, start to understand that this is the way everyone's wired, and it's not just you that have been, you know, singled out, <laughs> uh, you start to <laughs> that realize, my ego yeah, talking? Is that what you're saying? That's, really? that's your ego, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. But the thing is, you know, another thing with that as well, you know, we're we're continuous improvement models okay we're never meant to be happy okay we're always supposed to be looked to be creating life should not get easier it should get better mm-hmm. so once we st- yeah it, it, it's true you know and I, I strongly believe in all this stuff and and that's why you know a lot of people think well i'm not going to get attacked by a chimp i'm not that stupid you know that won't happen you know i'm not going to go to war zone but these i'm i'm talking here with battle ready with breakpoint this is the small stuff if you can deal with the small stuff, stuff on a day-to-day basis, the big stuff takes care of itself. But once you, you've got to really start to learn the process of how, um, you know, tackling the obstacles is the path to success, is the path to happiness, is the path to fulfillment. And if you're the kind of person, as, it is, as we're wired to do, you're looking for that short-term comfort. That could be alcohol, that could be sex, that could be drugs, that could be anything. If your life is all about the shortcut to comfort, then that leads to long-term pain. You've got to understand that anything great in this life, you have to engage in short-term pain for uh, short-term discomfort for the long-term gain. So, so one of the small things you talk about in the book, and Natalie and I were discussing yeah. this on the phone this morning, which kind of it shocked me, but also it made perfect sense to me, Ollie. Is you say that when your alarm goes off in the morning, not just you but all of us, we have five seconds to get out of bed, or we will reconsider getting out of bed. Now, how have you worked this out? Because it is true, by the way. It, well, it's absolutely true. There's actually a, an inspirational... Mel Robbins, I don't know if you've heard of Mel Robbins, but she is the most sought-after female um, motivational speaker in the US. And I actually came up with this whole theory that, you know, that is... That is I keep going back to this thing, Breakpoint, because Breakpoint is, is how I first understood this. You know, it's about as soon as you see something, you know, it's like anything in life as soon as you see something that needs doing don't walk past it and save it for later because you'll you you will not end up doing it as soon as you think about anything you want to do unless there's something standing you know um full frontal in your way you have to take action because your mind again with everything else i talk about in the book you know the fact that we're always looking for the shortcut we're always looking for um comfort we're avoiding stress and everything else your mind is just—it's just our survival blueprint. We're going to look to 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 move us away from any kind of thing that could be any kind of danger, any kind of threat. So, um, so really, it, it was something I, I for me, I was just sick of coming up with. I want to do this. I want to do that, and it not happening. 
It was just the same repeat loop day in, day out. And I was tired of it. I was tired of lying to myself. I was tired. If I'd have been much happier if like, give me a drug and I, not, I wouldn't have been much happier, but you know, (laughs) just that internal, if I wasn't going to do anything about it, then just sit there and stop fighting with yourself. Just, just, you know, just accept the fact you're never going to do anything about it, but we're not wired that way. We're wired to achieve things. So, uh, and create things. So, you know, for me, it was a realisation that if I want to make that change, I'm going to have to step into that, that discomfort. And a lot of it came from my special forces training. I didn't enjoy doing special forces selection. No one enjoys it. But, you know, the, the end result for me was, was something that was phenomenal. And that's what I hinged my, um, uh, that's what I hinged my, my thoughts, my emotions, everything on. And that's what pull, pulls you through. I came up with a, this analogy the other day. It's like... Because we are, you know, everyone, regardless of whether they like it or not, you know, you have, I've done, so I do a lot of corporate training. Um, I've heard a lot of people talking about corporate, you know, I've been to corporate events, corporate training, and the, the trainer stands there and goes, who here's got goals? And, and there's a, about three people put the hand up. I've been on some of these as well. Yeah, yeah. Two people, <laughs> two people half put the hand up and then scratch their head. And they, it's like, you know, a very minimal amount of people have got goals. But that's what they think. Everyone has got goals. And it's what your dominant thoughts focus on. So whether you have a chosen goal or not, your mind or your, you will be attracted towards what you think about. That is fact. You know, we're, we're a goal strive. Our subconscious is a goal striving mechanism that goes to what you think about your dominant thoughts focus on. So really, you know, it's, and, and, and the other day I was like, if you don't have a goal, you are, you're just meandering through life, just like, you know, on a treadmill. Um, if you don't have a goal, one will be chosen for you that's not favourable. And it's like, you know, it's, it's almost like if, I, if, if us three were stood next to a frozen lake, okay, the ice is, is just about to form over the top. And I said to you both, jump in there. What would you say to me? Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> okay now let me let, let me change this scenario a bit now let me give you another scenario i'm stood there you're looking at me and i'm stood there with the person you love mm-hmm. the most in this world i get them and i throw them into the middle of that lake yeah and they start to drown do you think you give a fuck about how cold it is? No, no, I wouldn't. And I actually had that very scenario uh, on holiday a couple of years ago where my, I think he was four years old then, my son uh, was playing in a, in a swimming pool and he couldn't swim properly and yeah. he fell into the deep end and I was fully clothed sitting on the side watching him and I just jumped in yeah. and, and didn't even feel the cold, didn't feel it one bit. Exactly, because basically your goal overwhelms your circumstances. And the thing is, if you don't have a goal, then your circumstances overwhelm you. You become a victim of your circumstances. And that's why people without goals, they end up getting so bogged down with the, with the day-to-day absolute crap. You know? And that's why a lot of military people, they come back. I talked about it in my last book. I think it's mentioned in this book as well. It's about peace in war. And it's, you know, when you come home from a war zone and people are talking about, you know, the neighbours, trees hanging over your fucking fence <laughs> and the washing machine's not working. Yeah. And, you know what mm. I mean? That's what drives people mad because it's just so, God, you're just like that. This is killing me. Mm-hmm. You know, because their goals, they just haven't got goals that, that you know, they, they get so bogged down in their day-to-day nothingness because mm-hmm. they haven't got anything pulling them through. So anyway, 
I could go on. And you will, and we will go on because there's lots more of ground to address in uh, in this amazing yeah. book. Really, I was. I found it very motivating, Ollie, and we'll get to that in a moment, but I want you to read us a bit from it so that people listening get a sense of this in your voice. And we've chosen a section which is where you start to question who you are and you start to address how you might move forward in your life. Who am I? I wondered. My recovery began with the self-admission that I had a problem I needed to address. It wasn't the world that was broken and needed fixing. It was me. I began to look inwards instead of listening to my egotistical mind chatter, which was overflowing in anger, self-loathing, fear and desperation. I drank myself into a cul-de-sac of blackouts from three-day binges that barely masked the pain, only for it to return with bigger teeth. But as soon as I started looking inwards for the answers, all these positive molecules seemed to grow and coalesce. Creative ideas started flowing and out of nowhere, the idea of a company called Breakpoint came to me. We all have moments of clarity where breakpoints appear. The mist thins and we're presented with a route of escape from the situation we're stuck in. The trick is to realise that we have the power within us to follow these routes. I was caught in the web of a bad relationship, too scared to leave it because of the pain and toxic arguments that would follow. Instead of experiencing that short-term discomfort for long-term gain, I was prepared to tolerate the flat line of long-term discomfort. We're all tuned that way, with our work, jobs, friendship and marriages. We must understand the concept of a breakpoint, to push through these moments of discomfort and then see a better future. An extreme example of this is my being attacked by the chimp. I could have accepted my fate and let the ape kill me, or fought back and found a breakpoint. And that gives a really good sense of how you then go on to map out how you find a breakpoint. But again, I just wonder if people might read this and they might get all fired up by it. And then if they're in the pit of despair, which is when they might need this the most, that's the hardest time to find the energy to commit to that short-term pain that you've discussed in order for the long-term gain, isn't it? Yeah, because again, you know, which is another thing, another chapter in this book is, is what's known as the shortcut syndrome. And we're all, you know, there's, there's all these different factors that support us not achieving our goals. And, and the shortcut syndrome is really the fact that when you're in that pressured situation, and this could be a sales meeting, this could be an argument with your partner, this could, all kinds of manner of things, but it's a pressured situation. And this is the moment where you just go, let me fix this, let me fix it, let me sh shove a band-aid on this and walk through it. You know, but the thing is, that is, and we talk about this, this is the opposite of what we need to achieve. That is short-term comfort. But you know by putting a Band-Aid, you know, if you're having a, if you're constantly, and I've, I've been there, and a lot of people have, if you're constantly arguing with the person that you're with, you're both making each other unhappy, you know, one of you needs to bite the bullet, take that short-term discomfort and do something for the good of both of you. And that's the same with every situation. But the thing is, you can only do that if you have some balls about you and it's all about courage. The whole thing is about courage. The thing with Breakpoint, the thing with being battle ready, it's about being courageous. And being courageous is about throwing yourself into a situation without any confirmation of a successful outcome or any guarantee of a successful outcome. See, that again, the way we wired, a lot of people, the majority, 98%, as a stat, 
of people will not do something they don't will not do something that they doubt they can achieve you know what i mean we we don't want to a look stupid we don't you know we don't want to see like we we don't want to be seen like we've failed so we always take the shortcut to to to, to know that of something that we can achieve so when it comes up to doing something courageous we steer away from that path now another thing i talk about in this book as well in those moments, and you will have moments and then walk away. And it's about, first of all, recognising those moments. If you sort of go, you know, have that argument or whatever. Oh, I'll tell you what, even a simpler one. And I talk about this in great point. But if you go, you know, every night, you know, you come up, the kitchen's a mess. It's 11 o'clock at night. You've just watched a load of crap on TV and you walk into the kitchen. And you go, I'm just not up for that at the moment. You know what I mean? The break point moment is the moment you go, you know what? I'm going to push straight against that now and I'm going to clean everything up. You imagine the difference when you wake up that next morning. You walk down, the whole place is clean and you're like, yeah, my day is in order. If you walk down and that whole, whole place is a mess, you start your day off knowing that your, your life is chaos. And I tell you what, I, I came across this as well running the other day. You know, I've got, I'm, I'm going out running every other day. Uh, I, I try and go every day, but it's, it's, I try and mix it with the gym now. I've got a few routes that I go and one of them's got a nasty big hill. And last time I did the hill, I was puffing and panting like a 90 year old. <laughs> and I got to the top and I was like, oh, that was absolutely horrible. So the next time I went for a run, my mind said to me, go the other way. And I was going, yeah, go the other way because you went the hard one the other day and, the, you know, the hill was, you know, just go the other way because it's flatter and, you know, you were... And my mind was like enforcing every reason why I should take the easier route. So I allowed that to do that. And when I actually came to actually going down the drive, I had a choice to turn left or right, left being the easier route, right being the hill. Got to you the... did the hill, didn't you? you I did, did the, the hill. hill. <laughs> I did the hill because my mind was telling me not to do the hill. And I thought, and when I got to the hill... You know, instead of focusing on thinking, God, this is going to be horrible, I got to the bottom of that hill and every step I took, I said in my mind, this is where the growth is. This is where the growth is. And the hill was a lot easier than the last time I did it. But the thing is, that's just the way that we're, we're geared to, to actually take the easier route every time. And once we start to recognise that and start to be aware how devious our mind is, we start to become an emotional observer instead of a victim of our emotions, we start to choose the emotions that we want to align with, the ones that suit our long-term goal. Bearing in mind, we have to have a goal. You know, and I think, you know, now, again, in that pressured situation, to come back to answering that question, which is really important, there's something else I talk about a lot, you know, and it, it does stem from special forces training. It does stem from when I've actually been in, in you know, under, under attack from the enemy. And that is what's known as breathe, recalibrate, deliver. Now, when we get into a pressure, pressured situation, the first thing that happens is we start to become stressed. Uh, we start to breathe erratically. Okay, What happens then, and I know um, doctor or biologist, what happens then is cortisol starts to increase. And that's basically, you know, that's fear overtaking our body. And at that point, that is when you're likely to take the shortcut syndrome and take the easiest route out to get out of that danger as quickly as possible. But nine times out of 10, you're moving into further danger, okay? Or you're not making a decision based on clarity. It's all confusion. You're just trying to escape. 
Now, what we do in Special Forces is we go into these situations because we're so highly trained, we've been there before, we know what we're doing. We have a controlled uh, pattern of breathing. It's not something we have to sit there and think, right, I need to, you know, but the way they are starting to teach that a lot now in Special Forces in, in some countries all over the world, that basically they've started to teach box breathing. So that basically combats that situation. In a highly pressured situation, you stop for a second. Instead of taking that action based on confusion, you stop even for a millisecond or whatever, and you make sure you take a deep breath, okay? And then it's about getting into a control pattern of thinking. Then what happens, cortisol decreases, we get clarity up here, and then whatever our focus is, whatever our goal is, whatever our mission is, we head towards that direction and it's a decision based on clarity. So first of all, reckon up. But Ali, you write in the book that that yeah. breathe, rate, recalibrate, deliver. Yeah. That that, op- now maybe this is just for special forces, not for civilians like us, but you write that that should only take five seconds. And I'm thinking by the time I've done one deep breath in and one out, that's three seconds. Yeah, but the thing is, as soon as you take that breath, breathe, recalibrate, deliver, yeah. you're doing breathe and recalibrate at the same time because as soon as you take that one breath, the cortisol is lowering and you're starting to clear the fog straight away with the first oh, breath. You're doing that. So within that first couple of seconds, three seconds, if you even want to call it that, or four seconds, you have started to get clarity. Yeah. So, yeah, okay. so I, w- I would say that that does happen as well, Phil, because I can tell you this is going to make my life sound like it was really exciting and dramatic, but it, it's not generally. Um, uh, this is a long time ago. Uh, we, my, myself and my husband, were going for a walk in the woods in America and we'd had like a talk by rangers before we went into this, uh, into the mountains where we we're going to be doing it. And um, there were bears there and they said what to do if you come across a bear, which is basically to not run. Otherwise, the bear will chase you, which I'm sure you probably know all about this, Ollie. Um, and uh, lo and behold, we walked down towards um, the river. And there was a bear that was by the water and did the thing where it looked up and saw us. And my husband panicked and just started to sprint. And I, <laughs> I in that moment, like, did a karate chop across his chest and was like, you cannot run, do not run, and made us walk, just kind of literally holding him back, walk sort of back up to safety, if you like. Um, but yeah, so I, I can absolutely understand that. It only takes a few seconds, but it's that moment where you just kind of, I clearly did some kind of logic thing. I was like, no, I think I know this. I think I'm not supposed to run, so don't run. And then was able to not be mauled to death by a bear. And there you go. And that is the very reason why more men die than women. (laughs) (laughs) But you you do a bit of that on the show as well, don't you? I've noticed in the last two seasons of SAS, there's an exercise where you, you drag them along the ground, the contestants, and there's a soldier coming towards them. You give them a gun and you go, hang on, it could be the enemy. And nine times out of ten, they pull that trigger, but they shouldn't because they're friendly. Is that what that's about? Is that breathe, recalibrate, deliver in action? That is 100%. And you know what? We are so, that is probably one of the best tests we've done from our perspective. One of the best tests we've done on SAS Who Dares Wins because everyone sees all these Hollywood films, you know, it's all these guys looking cool, taking the shot. And uh, you are absolutely hanging out. Your head's going crazy. You're breathing like a maniac. And, you've, you know, you've got to make a decision. So it's about being able to just for even if a second, just to be able to gain some clarity. And that is exactly that. Breathe, recalibrate, deliver. You know, all those people that took the shot, how much difference would it have made if they'd have taken just one second to breathe in and go, what am I doing? You know, but, you know, we're we trained, you know, the whole, your whole body's come to fight or flight. 
you know, and it takes action just to get you out of the situation and usually it's the wrong decision. It is obviously an intense television show to watch. Um, what happens at the end of a day's filming? Are you really nice to people and go, oh, I'm really sorry, like, I'm not like that in person. Look, I'm, <laughs> I'm smiling, let's have a joke. Or do you kind of stay in character and like, no. No, no, I'll tell you what, I mean, I know definitely for me and Fox, we do struggle with, you know, um, being nasty to it. I come away from filming, you know, now we're doing the celebrity one as well. It's a whole month away. Um, and I actually walk away there thinking, what you know, initially I was, I was thinking, what's wrong with me? And I just realised that for a month I've been frowning and pulling funny mm. faces. <laughs> I'm, I'm being angry. And it's just not, it's not me. You know, I'm not happy being that person all the time. There are moments where I get angry, of course. But, you know, being that kind of in that kind of mindset is, is hard for me. And I want it as soon as the guy, as soon as people start proving that they want to be there, the ego's, you know, gone. And I see the raw character of who they are. I want to, I want to like friend them and, and say, yeah, you're doing well, but we can't. You know, one of the things with, um, one of the things with uh, SAS training uh, selection, one of the things with SAS who does wins and that one of the hardest things to deal with is validation. We have been from an early age when it was coming home, bringing the first picture home to your mum that went on the fridge and everyone, you know, had to look at that picture and you told how brilliant you were. We've, we strive for validation, what we wear, what we say, everything we need, you know, what we, how we perform. You've got to have someone there that goes, that was brilliant. When that's taken away, that's when your mind starts to go crazy. Am I as good as I thought? I'm, you know, that's the, that's the seed of self-doubt. And, and really, that's what SES selection is all about. Because in a war zone, you're not going to have someone saying, that was a really good attack, actually. You know, I love the way you shot the... Uh... <laughs> There's no one there doing that. You know, you don't know when the you you don't get to call the shots and say it. So, oh, time's up. Everyone, war's over. You know, it's it, it doesn't work like that. So that's the reason we do that kind of stuff. You know, it's no validation for your actions. It's all about self motivation. It's all about courage. It's all about um, being not not require not not requiring or needing that self-validation or, or the confirmation of, of your performance, you know? So there's a lot of stuff in SAS Who Dares Wins, although it's only a very short period of time that does relate to the real selection, although it's nowhere near it. But, you know, when it comes to the mindset stuff, the, you know, all that, you know, the, the, that, the psychology, it is spot on. How different is the celebrity one that you do for you guys? I mean, for me watching, I've seen more ego for a start. And in the one that we, we've seen recently where fashion who nearly strangles the life out of locksmith from rudimental. I was surprised I didn't see one of you running on to break that up. No, we were actually going to throw in some beer in and get it to go over. <laughs> 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 no, but uh, you know what? I was, I've thought about this over the last 20... This is something I came up with yesterday because I think obviously think a lot, but um, um, I thought, yeah, you know what? I really do like the celebrity one because... <clears throat> The whole purpose of the whole purpose of selection, whole thing, the beauty of the show is the fact that these people come along, you see their facade, you see their ego, and very quickly, at least the ones that go the distance or a decent distance, once they disengage from their ego, that's when they can start to really develop. That's when they can start to bond this camaraderie with no ego in the way. And that is absolutely brilliant to see that happen. Now, what I love about the celebrity one is people can see that happening because people see celebrities they know these people you know what i mean if we get 
Joe Bloggs come along from that they've never ever seen in their lives. They don't know what they were like before. Mm-hmm. So they've got no benchmark to, to quantify this, this transformation. But the celebrity one is totally different because we know these people. We know exactly who they are. We know this guy, like Joey Essex recently. I mean, everyone's got such a, you know, this um, very limited view of Joey Essex. And I've got so many comments last night about how I never saw Joey in that light. You know, because, and that's the, that's the beauty of the celeb version. They see how this transformation works because they've got a benchmark to go from. So I love the celebrity one. I think it's amazing. And also the fact is these celebs are really admiring because they know they're going to come on there, get absolutely rinsed and be exposed for who they truly are. Yeah. Uh, On a similar theme to that, how does it feel? You've obviously had one book out before, but having a second book out, which is, you know, telling even more of your story and really going into your psychology a lot and what you really believe, how exposing do you feel putting that out in the world? I feel to- totally, totally uh, open and exposed when it comes to, to writing this stuff. And I think that's so important because I am sick of people faking perfection. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Everyone on Egogram, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Instagram, <laughs> you know, everyone's faking perfection. And for me, you know, I can remember someone said to us a while ago when we were filming, you guys are carved from a different, you know, cut from a different cloth. And I went, no, we're not. And I had to actually say to him, we're not, we just, you know, we, we, we're ordinary people doing extraordinary things and everyone's capable of the same things. So I think it's really, you know, instead of going into a book and saying, I love the special forces and, you know, I knew I, I was the best of the best and da, da, da. That's not, that's not the case for me. I absolutely told the truth. The special forces didn't do it for me. You know, it did a lot of things, but it didn't complete me. And I wasn't still on that search. I was still on that search for a long time afterwards. Um, so just being open and on, it helps people relate to me as a person, not as a special forces celebrity on TV. Yeah. And what assumptions do people often wrongly make about you anyway? Because, again, in this book, you know, you, you talk about writing poetry and there's a poem of yours in there. And, you know, you wouldn't necessarily put that with your SAS TV persona that people know so is there other things that people wouldn't expect from you do you like love kittens who spew glitter or something do you want to see what i've got on <laughs> oh here we go here we go have a look <laughs> let's not go there um but that is it you know even when i was in you know to be quite honest when i was serving i was i i, I was quite proud of the fact i was i was i was different i was my, i was still my own person to me it was a job i wasn't living this persona of who i was supposed to be i was me and that i think is so important because everyone is so hung up on trying to create the person they're supposed to be they forget exactly who they are you know we put so much energy and social media enforces this and really amplifies it everyone is putting so much energy into the person they want everyone else to think they are and the thing is the byproduct becomes the actual you who's the one that's in depression sat in the corner having a cry or whatever it is and it's not really you but the thing is you're so invested in making sure everyone thinks that you're okay and this is a lot of the problem when it comes to mental health issues you know, you look at some of the extremes of this circumstance, you know, like some, um, some you know, some real like um, pop rock stars, pop stars and stuff. You know, they've fought with who they really are for a long, long time, you know, because they've built this absolutely amazing persona of this person that everyone loves. And it's not them. And that's we all do that to some degree. And that's OK. But you should never really um, disconnect with who you are. That should be, you know, the, the, the persona should be the byproduct, not the other way around. 
you know, so so really for me and this, you know, when it came to me going off to South America recently, you know, that was a massive part of my journey on that, um, you know, ayahuasca at um, Soltara. It was, it, was, it was real identification of that and making sure that I, because I am on social media, everyone stereotypes, everyone anywhere. It's like everyone stereotypes celebrities. Suddenly you've got a, a, an Olympian that is now a celebrity and they're stereotyped as a celebrity and not an Olympian. You know, some people going on and so when we when we come up with a lineup of celebrity SAS who days wins, oh, I'm not watching that. I don't I don't even recognise them. And you've got like the lineup of yeah, there are some people, social media stars that people can't associate with, but you've got lineups of people like a triple um, you know, um uh, Olympic gold medal winners. And people are like, oh, that's not a celebrity. But the thing is, you know, we stereotype everyone and everyone stereotypes. It's, it's really important for me to actually go out there and I'm not, I'm, I won't be stereotyped. You know, I don't do things to perform for other people. I'm not a politician. You are, you, 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 I am what you see. And you get, you know what I mean? And that was, that was really, for me, that, that, that was so important to learn that when I went away. I, I'm, not gonna, I'm not trying to be anyone else. I'm just me. And if you don't like it, you know, I'm not everyone's. Um, I'm not. I'm not everyone's cup of tea. I'm. I'm more like your shot of whiskey, but I don't drink. But, <laughs> but you know what, Natalie? Wouldn't you say? I mean, we've been with Ollie now what fifteen, twenty minutes. Isn't he? A, he's a cheerier version of what we see, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say as well. I, I'm kind of intrigued as well by the process that must have gone into selecting the photo for the cover of this book as well because again you know you're smiling you got a little cheeky grin on there and you're clearly not wearing like the usual clothes that people are, are used to seeing you in and did you kind of go through do people try and style you a particular way for this and you were like no I, I don't want that I just want to be me no to be honest I mean you know I've uh, my publishers who are absolutely amazing blink you know we we wanted this book you know Titles like Breakpoint and Battle Ready, people stereotype and go, oh, military. You know, and it couldn't be further from the truth. You know, at the end of the day, the book called Battle Ready was important for me because it's about, it doesn't matter who you are, we're all fighting a battle. You know, but because of that stereotyping, people will go, that's about the military, I'm not really about the military. This is about self-development for male, female, every genre, every age, okay? And... Really, it's a philosophy book, Ali, isn't it? It's philosophy and psychology. I would absolutely, say absolutely, absolutely, mate. And, and really, to, we we wanted to be to open up to a bigger audience. So really, having me on the front, scowling at everyone, you know that that people turned the turn it over straight away. You know, was was not the way forward. You know, for, for, it was so important for us to have a more uh, welcoming um, approach to this book. So I feel as well now is probably like a good point to admit that, and I hope you don't take this the wrong way. That I'm really glad that I read this book, but on that. I don't know if I would have picked this up necessarily mm. myself because of the military references and battle ready and do this. And yeah. it can be quite masculine sometimes. Um, but I really enjoyed genuinely reading it and a lot of it resonated with me. But isn't it interesting how even those kind of self-development things sometimes are quite directive and can sort of fall into sort of gender stereotypes in some way? Yeah, um, 100%. Which is 100%, but that, that, that you know... Your opinion of the book there is, is what we're trying to get through. But the thing is, mm. I mean, we could have called it something like, I don't know, something a lot softer like 
Um, Glitter kittens. Yeah, or, or the or, or the tickle club, or I don't know. <laughs> um, Smile, it helps. I'll tell, yeah. I'll tell you what this book is for me, and I, I like I, I like this analogy anyway. I'm I'm quite proud of it. Remember when you? Used, I, I think we're all of an age group where we'll, we'll we'll remember this. But remember when you used to buy a car, you used to get a Haynes manual. Yeah. Right. Okay. You're a bit younger, Natalie, no? Yeah. Uh, Not well, for you. Do you know what the Haynes manual is? No, I don't. But then again, right. bear in mind, without wishing to do myself a disservice for being female, I would be more like, oh, I like the pretty pink one or I like the yellow one. And uh, yeah, is it a good price? Rather than what does it do? Yeah, so basically... So the yeah. Haynes manual would basically told you about your car. It was basically, it was a kind of a layman's guide, wasn't it, yeah. Ollie? So if you lifted the body, what was under yeah. there? Oh, yeah. I did actually read some of those. I quite like reading those. Yeah, we well, used, to, know what used to get one. So basically, mm. to, to the uneducated educated person mechanically wise they could open that book they could do a fault diagnosis they could actually find out where the problem was they could buy the new parts through being finding that through the fault diagnosis they could fix it themselves and get that car performing to the best of its ability now this for me is the haynes manual for the mind body and soul you know what the thing is we're so attached to this we think the answers are all in here you know they're everywhere but the thing in the phones yeah in the phones but the thing is when it comes to us when it comes to our self-development fulfillment everything else that is a manual process okay you can use things i mean i use technology uh, in the morning when i do meditation i have a guided meditation i use something off youtube you know or there's so many resources out there but the thing is at the end of the day it's a manual activity to get your head straight so you know that that book really is you know and that's why in the book as well it's made it very personal to the person you know there's exercises in the book um, that you can go along, fill in, and you go through the very process that I went through um, to sort myself out. And it worked for me like you wouldn't believe. And, you know, you've got to quantify what is success. You know, a lot of people say, oh, success has got to be the, all, all the money in the bank and this, that, you know, and that will be the answer to everything. It's not, you know, everyone's money doesn't make you happy. Everyone knows that cliche term. It is true. You know what I mean? The The, the sooner we start escaping from um chasing the uh physical image of something that looks amazing the better we start to make life easier for ourselves because the longer you're chasing the image you know the car the the house the marriage whatever it is you 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 fight against something that's not there you know happiness and fulfillment and everything else isn't in a bank balance it's not in in searching for the perfect visual it's how you feel as soon as people and we're all on Zoom at the moment, and so hopefully you can see Ollie from the Zoom picture that I, I have long given up that perfect image. <laughs> <laughs> I do like your background, though. Oh yeah, I should explain. I've got a virtual top of the pop studio background. Yeah, no, I'm quite jealous of that. <laughs> I'll, I'll ping it you after. Can I? I wanted to be a bit bold, if you don't mind. Can I read one of your poems? Do you mind me I'd doing love you that? To, yeah, go for it. Yeah. So this is on page forty-five of the book, and I just think. Going back to what Natalie was saying, where you just would not expect to find this quality of work in a book written by someone who'd served in the Special Forces. That's the preconception. So this is your poem. And almost like magic, the distance grew into a blur of sound. And as I looked, I remembered only the recurring memory of a time misplaced with fear and anguish. Who, I asked myself, am I? And as confused as I was, I sat at the pinnacle of something my mind questioned. Where are you from? And why are you here? I have no fucking idea. I came here looking for someone I don't want to find. So lost and desolate I am. Why don't you tell me? 
Time comes quicker than any moment requested. If only we could grasp back the moments we would love to change. Your time is yours. What would you do to make it something you would never forget? Now, how do you feel as you hear that back? I'm about to cry. (laughs) (laughs) No, you know what? That takes me back to a time. And that really, you know, that whole poem was in that crossroads. You know, it was my lowest point, but it was my greatest point because it was really that point when I was starting to question what was going on. And the thing is, the longer that you're in that sort of trapped in that world, that repeat cycle, and you don't question what's going on, that's really dangerous. And that for me at that point... I was really starting to question what was going on, what was in my past, what was in my future. I was at a crossroads. And I was really starting, although I didn't want to, you know, I was looking for someone I didn't want to find because I was so scared of actually who I was. Um, but it was that moment in my life when I really started to question and that, was, that, was, that poem was my turning point. And it's, it's really well written as well. I'm, I'm quite intrigued too by, in the acknowledgements, you thank your ghostwriter who mm. helped you with the book as well. And whether that was what the process was like for that and, and why you felt you needed to have a ghostwriter because you can clearly write. Yeah, no, I think it's really important because when it comes to formatting a book, there is an art to that. And I haven't got that art. I can't, you know, I can't profess, you know, the way that uh, Richard is an amazing guy and he's a different, you know, I had a different ghostwriter that did my autobiography because I needed to align with someone that really understood the message. You know, he's, he's on the same sort of parallel tr- uh, track. But the thing is with Richard, he could he knew how to format the story. And it was, a, it's a you know, I know a lot of ghostwriters, they go out there and they're just given, you know, they, it's a hard job for them because they've got to scrape at the bottom of nothing to try and come up with a story. But really, it was more of a collaboration with me and Richard. You know, we, we actually, in between filming SAS, um, normal um, show and celebrity, we had three days off up in Scotland and... Me and Richard, you know, spent that time in a house for that three days off and we went through the book, you know, and basically we, we came up with everything. And, and, and Richard is very skilled at what he did and he helped format all the pieces together. So he makes, you know, he puts it in a format that really does roll out well. No, because if I that did, must have been yeah, an yeah. intense three days. Oh, it was, it was hideous. It was, it was. I tell you what, I couldn't wait to get back to SAS. It was like, take me, <laughs> take me back to the eighteen-hour days and 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 the frowning. Mm. Um, but um, but yeah, it, it was. But the thing is, that, you know, if I if I was to tell a story, I've got so like we've just had this. My book would be like mm. this conversation. I'm going, bah, bah, da, 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 da. you know, I've got I've got too much information, and it all gets crammed in. And before you know it, I've confused more people than than actually helped. <laughs> so mm. I, I hope that's not the case. But the answer's there. Um, you you mentioned your trip, um, and this is the. Um, the truth plant, they mm. call it. And this Ayahuasca. is this drink that you yeah. had. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and um, you were taken there by the Heroic Hearts Project. Yeah. And when I read that, and I thought that's great that they've done that for you, but I just wondered, does that mean, are we still not doing enough for our former servicemen and women, even in 2020, to assist with their PTSD? Um, I think it's such a hard thing to do. I, I really do, I don't blame the military. Because when I look at my own trauma, I don't blame the military at all. You know, I had tra- trauma before I joined. A lot of people joining the military are running away from something. Um, but, you know, so I don't blame anyone. It's just That's just life as far as I'm concerned. You don't have to be the, in the military. There's no checklist for PTSD that says you must have had that, 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 that. It's personal to every single person. Now, I can't say that we're not, do- you know, I think it's a hard thing to try and manage because a lot of the trauma, like I said to you earlier about the chimpanzee, once it happens, that intimate emotional detail, 
which is where the, the problems start, is locked away. We've, locked, we've buried it. It's deep. We move on. And I still think it's really hard work. You know, when something happens, even if you have an intervention straight afterwards, you know, you have, you know, I know they do that these days. You know, once there has been an incident, they, they, there is a process, I believe, in the military they now follow. But I don't think you're not getting to the raw nerve because it's, it's a, it's a long process. And, and for us to say, right in, in 332 days, we need to see you again. You don't know when it's going to come out. You don't know when that pressure cooker is going to start offloading. And I think it's really hard for anyone to, you know, we can't, we can't blame anyone. It's, it's very personal to the person. It depends what other information's coming in there, et cetera, et cetera. So I wouldn't say, yeah. But if there was a, say a formal process where at the end of your service, you went through, say, a six-month programme of working through this stuff, and so you forced the operative to confront it rather than waiting for it to boil over. Would that work? You know what? Not? If that had happened to me, and I, I've been asked this question a lot, if that happened to me, I'd have found a way to get out of it. Would yeah. you? You know, because I've been like, that. I, there's nothing wrong with it. Just leave me alone. I've left. I want to go. I want to go, you know, and, and I, I wouldn't... Even if there was a process I had to go through, I would not engage with it. I would not allow it to absorb because I know looking back now, if someone had said to me, right, Ollie, we need to put you through this decompression process. It's going to help you. You know, you'll thank us when you're 40, 48. I'd have been like that. I'm off. <laughs> so I, I don't, you know, I don't, but it's not a case that I, th I think we, you know, every person, although, you know, I do believe there's some good help out there, but I do believe it's down to the person, the individual, to go and seek help, to, to get on a path of recovery. And, and if there is help out there, they've got to come halfway. A lot of people are hooked on drugs, they're hooked on alcohol. While those external um, uh, smoke screens are going on, you're never going to get to the raw nerve. You're never going to get to the bottom of it. So a lot of people, you know, I see this a lot with charities, you know, charities are funded by the public. A lot of people, a lot of veterans suffering with PTSD are taking this money to help them, but they're not coming halfway. You know, they're still drinking heavily. They're still doing this. And a lot of the time, and it was, I have to admit with me, a lot of the time, once I took the alcohol out of the equation, I won't say, it was, you know, it, I actually could see what I had to, you know, what, what I had to work with. But until I did that, you know, your mind is telling you all kinds of things to avoid what you really need to do. Yeah. So, I know yeah. that... Uh... Our time is probably going to run out with you quite soon, Ollie, but I yeah. did also want to ask before we leave you, because you've obviously you're living, a, you're living a very different life now, but you talk again in the book about how once the structure of the military goes away, the difficulty of that, what's it been like for you in lockdown and how do you see things progressing over the, the coming weeks and, and has that been a challenge mentally still? Yeah, just, just because we're in lockdown doesn't mean we have to go on shutdown. So really, you know, it's about, you know, this when it all comes down to that, I really relate this now, if people can understand this now, think they're going through hell, which I know some people are, and I'm not trying to say, look, you know, give a comparison, but that's exactly what a veteran goes through when they come out. The scaffolding of their daily life, their discipline that's instilled by someone else falls away. And basically it comes down to us to be self-disciplined and motivated. And nine times out of 10, 
that's not going to happen. So really, you know, this is where this book comes in. And that's why it's so important to launch this book now. We could have pulled it and said it's not the best time. We can we can make more money or whatever later down the track. This book, I don't care about that. This book is so important because it tells you exactly what to do in these moments where you have to build discipline into your day and you have to make sure you have some kind of scaffolding framework to your week. You know, and a lot of that is investing in yourself and that's walking or, run, you know, any kind of exercise, some kind of mental activity, whether it's meditation or reading or whatever it is. And you have to have something, you have to invest in yourself, all right? Because if you just, a lot of people will be, and I feel for them, they'll be out there, you know, hitting the bottle. They'll be out there spending. I say, you no, know, one thing I say, sit there for a second and say to yourself, have a conversation with yourself in six months. You are sat there looking at yourself in six months. And say to yourself, what did you do in lockdown? You know, and if, if the answer is, well, I just sat on this all day long and I drank. You know what I mean? That is where you've really got to be honest with yourself and understand if, if you're looking, if you're sat at that moment looking back thinking that was a waste of time, start changing what you're doing today. And if you're not happy... See, I'm getting yeah. really annoyed because I've been spending too much time working. <laughs> lockdown and i want to be doing something but this is this is for people a lot of people will be like that i need to work Mm. i need to work but the thing is you need to have the separation as well when your life when your home life and your work life becomes welded together you need to make sure that you have clear separation and i say to a lot of people you know first of all multitasking doesn't work when it's constant you know i mean you lose your flow in anything if you're having to multitask all over the place secondly you should only be working 45 minutes before you have a break. And thirdly, you have to have a cutoff period when you say, I'm not going back in that office tonight. This is me time. And do whatever you want. You know, go and watch it, watch whatever you want. But you need the separation. You know, there can be overworking. People want to be the martyrs. Oh, I sleeps, you know, sleeps for, yeah, I've got plenty of time to sleep when I'm dead. Bollocks. That is, you know, <laughs> you need as much sleep and you need separation from your work. Right, listen, we ask each writer that comes on, Ollie, for some book recommendations for other writers. So these can be fiction, non-fiction, just something where if someone phoned you up and said, Ollie, I've, I've run out of books and I need something to read, what would you recommend? Um, first of all, I would recommend the one book that changed my life, and that is Eckhart Tolle, um, A New Earth. That, for me, was, was a game-changer. And it really started to help me identify with the ego. That was that was the that was the real start. When I put myself into that boot camp, that was the start. So have a look at that. Anything by Eckhart Tolle is absolutely amazing. So I just love his work. But sometimes, you know, that book really does state, you know, if you're not ready for this, it won't make a lot of sense. But I was ready for that. And it meant so much to me at that time. Another book I've just reordered, I'm waiting for it to come, and I can't wait. It's called Fingerprints of the Gods by um, by Graham Hancock. And I think that is, you know, the questions about the pyramids, about it just absolutely, I'm so compelled to understand, um, you know, the, the secrets of, of not just the pyramids, but, you know, you know, questioning what how long life has gone on on this planet and you know the big questions about the the pyramids is 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 the meat of that book but that is the second book so does it always tend to be non-fiction that you'll reach for first 100 percent. you know i'm I'm a true believer that i will always i i I believe that whatever you read 
it goes, you know, I know information that we read goes into the subconscious. I know what you're going to say, and I'm just thinking about all the things I've read yeah, in my so time. If, if, if you're Fifty Shades of Grey... <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no I'm, not, I'm not saying you. I'm not saying you. But, you know... Uh, I know, I should say, of course I've read it. Of course I've read it. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but the thing is, you know, I, I will only... I only want to read things that are going to be a benefit to me. You know, uh, 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 you know, I want... Anything that I read, I know is going to go into the subconscious and it's going to affect my life moving forward. So if you're, you know, so I make sure the input equals the output that I desire. Yeah, so you read a lot of crime, Phil. What does that say about you? <laughs> Thanks so oh, much I... for being so generous with your time. I really appreciate no, it. No, really, and yours. I really Lovely enjoyed stuff. that. That was great. Thank, Thank you. Good. Well, what do you take home from that, Lady Jamie? So first of all, I've always known that you're tough as nails, but I didn't know that you had the kahunas to tell an SAS Special Forces operative to fuck off. And that, I think that was my highlight by a stretch. Yeah, that will come as no surprise to anybody in my family, I don't think. That Who I did knows that. you? Um, yeah, and, and listening back to it as well, I think it was one of those things where, you know when you're like, oh, I'm not going to say, oh, I am going to say that. Yeah, I said that. It was just a natural reaction. You know, what am I going to do? But you know what? He loved it. And I think with, with someone like Ollie, when he talks about how he wants the truth to be out there, he mm. wants it back yeah. and he doesn't want it dressed up. And I think one of the things that he really loved was how you picked up on that they softened the cover of the book, they've tried to go for a broader demographic, but that you still liked it. I think that made his day. <laughs> well, I was a bit apprehensive because... One of the things I've really enjoyed about doing this genuinely is that it's really got me back into reading, which I think I mentioned before I was really struggling with in lockdown. And a sort of self-help book, if you like, like Battle Ready, may not have been the first thing I'd have reached for. It's probably not at this time, even though it's a really good time, I think, to sort of take a bit of a yeah. bit of introspection and, you know, really think about things like that. And it was actually so useful, genuinely, and um yeah, I, I kind of, I felt like I learned a lot from reading it. And, you know, I think with anything like that, some things are going to work for you more than others. But there were some really good, good phrases and just sort of things that he talked about that um, made me think about mental health and resilience and and just, you know, how, how we treat ourselves a lot better. Yeah, I agree. Lockdown doesn't mean shutdown was yeah. one for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and also the way, actually what I thought was really good was the way they were talking about the, the breathing and the recalibrating. And when I kind of queried him on that and said, well, look, surely it takes more than five seconds. You you gave your own example of how you'd utilise that as a as a skill in life. And I think whenever I've, I've done some work in with psychologists and breathing is so key. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that goes out the window when you when you feel stress or anxiety, your breathing goes out the window. But you don't know you don't become conscious of it because you're so mentally concerned with what's fretting you. Yeah. That you haven't clocked what your heart rate's doing. Yeah. And all of the calm stuff now and all of these apps you can get like Headspace, it's all mostly they start on the breathing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, they do. And I think it is also really useful that I think when we were all in offices and doing very stressful jobs, and I'm aware that a lot of people still are doing that, is that your reaction times are supposed to be a lot quicker. Whereas I think being out of that environment 
there's a bit more grace given to how long you respond to somebody. So if somebody, you know, fires off that email uh, last thing on a Monday or Friday, or whatever it might be, that really puts your back up. Whereas before you might have just fired off that angry email back in return because you know it has to be dealt with then and there because they're waiting for a response. And it's actually the wrong thing to do. And and I think it's okay. You have to t- just take a breather and kind of when you step away, you'll calm down a bit and then you can come back to it and and hopefully just think a lot clearer about how to deal with some really tricky things. Have you got into the show as a result? I know you did watch a couple of episodes so in preparation for the interview. Yeah, I did. Uh, I did really enjoy it. And what I also really enjoyed hearing from Ollie was how that is a bit of an act, which, you know, I think both of us have seen behind the curtain of TV a little bit, so it's not overly surprising. <laughs> yeah, but um, again, it's it's sort of fascinating to hear him talk about how, you know, filming SAS for a month does affect your outlook if you're having to be, you know, play the tough guy and glare at people a lot and you know that that's actually not him and and it really affects how he's feeling while he's doing that so yeah it was it was I think you know he's an interesting guy yeah I was taken by how funny he was he's naturally funny which doesn't really come across on television mm. the other thing I just want to share with you listening is that I had this idea for the sketch that you heard at the beginning of the episode but I thought it's obviously not going to work if Ollie doesn't want to do it so before we did the interview I said to him listen at the end if you fancy it you know, I've got this idea for this sketch and we'll call you into interrogation and blah, blah. And he said, yeah, yeah, that sounds great. I'll do that. So he was bang up for it. And then as I started being mean to him, he couldn't stop laughing, could he? He just literally, he couldn't keep, he, he couldn't hold it in. And I was going to, give me your armband number one. And he was just corpsing. So what you heard at the beginning is a heavily edited version of what we did because he was literally corpsing the whole way through that, which I thought was to his credit as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and before we go again... um. Uh, thank you to everybody who has listened so far. We really appreciate it and do rate and review this podcast. Um, that'd be great. And also, Phil, you were going to forget to say thank you to somebody again. Oh, yeah. We need to thank my brother, Dave, who has done the music that you hear at the beginning and the end of each episode. So it's an original theme that he's composed for us. Um, we're, we love it. We're really pleased with it. And if you like it and you would like to commission my brother to do a similar thing for you, either for your TV show or for your podcast or whatever it is, then just drop us an email on that or any other subject you want to get in touch with to bestsellerspodcast at gmail.com, bestsellerspodcast at gmail.com, and we'll see that there. And uh, we'd like to build up some kind of postbox um, correspondence with you, you know, albeit you don't need to use the mail because that's not coming at the moment. So bestsellerspodcast at gmail.com is the easiest way to email us. And next time on Bestsellers, Natalie Jameson is... It is Lauren Wilkinson, whose book American Spy is, well, it's sort of billed as a thriller, but as you will hear, there's so much domestic drama as well. It's a brilliant book. So if you want to do any reading ahead of time of the next podcast coming, then check out Lauren's book. Uh, you won't be disappointed. No, it's really, really good. I read it last year and put Natalie onto it. I was so pleased that you liked it. And I actually put Barack Obama onto it as well, and it was one of his... Liar, you did not, year. you did not. <laughs> it was nothing to do with you. <laughs> but anyway, Lauren's great. <laughs> and as he would say, me out. <laughs> <laughs>